From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. So it turns out uh, that pumping your fist and screaming, yeah, is big business. In fact, uh, somewhere in the order of $2 billion here to talk about the cheerleading business is Jeff Webb, founder and chairman of Varsity Spirit, which is based in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, Jeff, you know, I, I'm interested when I think about cheerleading, I think about uh, very much an all-American type of uh, vision with girls in pigtails and pumping their pom-poms and uh, wearing those those pleated skirts and the specific sneakers, which I'm sure all costs money. But you're, you have an <laughs> eye toward a, a bigger business overseas. So where is the cheerleading that's going on outside of the U.S.? Outside. Well, it's still in its infancy, uh, but it is definitely uh, gaining momentum. Uh, we, we actually have a, an international federation that is just recently recognized by the International Olympic Committee, which kind of gives you validation as an emerging sport or a sport that's actually uh, arrived. And uh, we have 110 countries in that federation. So it gives you an idea of, of where true, how much activity there is on a broad basis. Now, f as far as it being deep, uh, there's no doubt that the, uh, you know, the U.S. has, because of its traditions, cheerleading's been around the U.S. for over 100 years at school, at gyms, and so on. So we have, a, we have a, a, a lot more people here involved in cheerleading, but it is beginning all over the world. And a lot of that just has to do with the exposure we've gotten with our national championships and world championships and uh, uh, some, some of the educational programs we've been involved in overseas. But it's, uh, it's an exciting time. Jeff, I understand that you are a Yale leader at the University of Oklahoma. What is a Yale leader? And uh, did your family say, gee, you know, law school would have been a good idea, <laughs> but you founded this company. Tell us how that all happened. Yeah, well, Yale leader is uh, the term that was used in, uh, in the day for uh, uh, the men who were involved in, in cheerleading. And uh, as far as the company itself, uh, yeah, I was going to go to law school. As a matter of fact, that was that was the that was the plan after after college. And uh, I'd been I'd been working uh, three or four jobs to get through school. And a gentleman who had a, a company that did cheerleading camps and clinics asked me to come work for him for a year to make money to go to law school. Did that kind of came up with different concept. Decided to leave there start my company, and the rest is history, I guess. Well, the, I w I'm glad you mentioned the camps and the training, because I want to just 
help people a little bit the scale of what is going on? How many people, how many camps, and maybe just enlighten everybody that is not part of this business? Well, the, the, I actually started with the camps. And of course, now we also have a uh, uniform business and also the, uh, the competitions that we do um, throughout the country. But the camps themselves are, are different than other sports camps that are normally for individuals. These are for teams. Teams that are already selected, high school cheerleaders, college cheerleading teams. They're four days and three nights, usually done on a college campus. We have about 300,000 students at our camps every summer. We're the largest uh, specialty camp operator of any kind in the world. Jeff, how much has cheerleading as a sport moved away from the sidelines of sports games and to its own discipline that is completely independent of a football game? Well, it's, it's interesting the, um, the they're, they're now different what we call disciplines of cheer. The traditional cheerleading that you see with, at the football games and basketball games, it's still it's the largest uh, part of cheerleading, and we don't want to do anything to take away from that. When when uh, when I started the company, the idea was to take the traditional leadership role on the sidelines at pep rallies and you know in the in the parking lots before the game, and add entertainment and athleticism and just kind of modernize it. And I don't think any of us realized the, 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 uh, how powerful that, that uh, combination would be. So for us, it's, we, we look at all, the, all the, the actual sport aspect as being additive to leadership. We think you know, college cheerleading, high school cheerleading are very important, and uh, we don't want to do anything to take away from the leadership. Having said that, there, there's also an actual pure sport play that's, that exists here in the U.S. and overseas. Yeah, when I think about cheerleading now, I mean, I have two sons, and if one of them went into cheerleading, I think I'd be frightened because I see some of the uh, flips that they'll do and uh, come down. I mean, it's 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 really a gymnastics type of endeavor, correct? Well, there, there are a lot of acrobatics involved in the entertainment aspect of it. And uh, one of the things that has allowed us to expand like we have is that we've developed all the techniques and the progressions of skills to actually do those stunts, is what they're called, in, in a safe way as possible. I mean, there, there is some risk and there are some injuries, and one injury is too many. But uh, we've been pretty successful in, in mapping this out to where it can be done in a controlled way. Uh, your company uh, has they uh, have you attracted any interest from buy from uh, from buyers private equity firms? Well, we're actually we are owned by private yeah. equity primarily right now. We've been through different types of iterations. Um, started in, in proprietor, individual proprietorship. We went through venture capital. We were a public company for a while. Correct. And have uh, and are now with private equity, uh, Charles Bank, based in uh, Banks in Boston. And we also, our company has transformed itself in that we, we have our traditional cheerleading and school spirit division or unit, which is Varsity Spirit. But we also have a, uh, Varsity Brands has a sporting goods, sports uniform division called BSN Sports. And also, uh, we have a graduation company called Herf Jones, which has class rings and so on. And, um, you know, they, the company itself, the CEO of the company is Adam Blumenfeld, who came up through the BSN ranks. And uh, he and I and our entire management team, along with Charles Bank, worked to take the company as far as we can take it. Well, I want to thank you for coming in. And uh, maybe off, uh, off mic, you'll give us that Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, yell call. <laughs> well done. Boomer Thanks. sooner. All right. Well done. Very good. Jeff Webb is the founder and chairman of Varsity Spirit. They are based in Memphis.
So does the world really need another travel website? Well, apparently it does. And here to tell us more about it is Bob Guccione Jr. He is the founder of WonderlustTravel.com. He's also the founder of Spin Magazine, Gear, and Discover Media. Nice to have you with us. Thank Thanks for you. coming into the thank, studio. Thank you, Pim and Lisa. Uh, Lovely to be you, here. How do you move on from spin, uh, which was music, right? A gear, which is gadgets and I believe uh, men's lifestyle, men's you know. lifestyle, and then a Discover Media, which is kind of science, right? Oh yeah, it was a science magazine. Yeah. yeah. So how does that morph into uh, this next uh, iteration of Bob Guccione Jr.? Well, actually, it does. You know, not that it had to, by the way, um, as a as a media editor and businessman you know i could have just simply said this is a great category but it has because it's really got the same kind of uh vein of overwhelming curiosity you know when i went into the music magazine business i always said it isn't really a music magazine it's a magazine for young people crossing the threshold between adolescence and young adulthood it was much more than a music magazine it was much more holistic and the same with wonderlust it's not just a magazine about nice places to go it's about the experience of traveling um, the experiences you can expect, the experiences you have had, um, the sort of awkwardness of, of, of often travel is very awkward. That's part of the liberating beauty of it. You know, I say the one thing about when we travel is always going to happen is we are always going to surrender our sense of control. It was always illusory anyway, but we think we have a sense of control and you surrender it. Um, and that is what allows you to take in, to absorb everything. You're not trying to pick and choose. You're actually just absorbing everything because you're like an infant dependent on the largesse of the people around you. So, Bob, uh, the website wanderlusttravel.com launched today, and I'm looking mm -hmm. at it right now, and there's a story, How to Pack for Mars, <laughs> which may, really raises a question for me. Um, who's your audience? Mostly Martians. Oh, okay. No, uh, no, you know, <laughs> All the Martians out there, this is for you. Yeah, it's the first site exclusively for people from Mars. Um, you know, the, the, point of, the audience question is, is I, I think we're looking at, the, you know, everybody who's smart and curious and likes to travel, and I would imagine it's going to fall And more, has money. Has money, yes, exactly. I was going to say it's going to fall more into the um, Gen X generation that has matured, the baby boomers who I'm part of and have hopefully matured, and the rest have, I don't know if I have. Um, and, you know, slightly older millennial, slightly older end of the millennial world. But really anybody who's curious, and as you said, has a bit of money so they can get on a plane, but um, I think curiosity is the main thing. The, the How to Pack for Mars thing was a bit of a sort of joke. Started out as a joke, it became a very serious article. Um, because, you know, our competitors, dearly beloved, the competitors, who I won't name, to, I don't want to diss anybody, but they've run articles, as you may have seen, called How to Pack. Well, once is fine, but 100 times, almost 200 times, these two publications. We were actually going to list all of them as, as links, and I just, I just say it looked ugly. But um, it was it about 200 between videos and articles that they have done about How to Pack. And I thought, how, you know, how much is there to say? <laughs> so I said, but however, even they have not done How to Pack for Mars. And having had a science magazine, I was at NASA on a couple of occasions, and I know that they have an entire chunk of the entire organization dedicated to this one question, how do you pack for Mars? It's not a small issue. <laughs> you know, it's a six-month flight. It's 33-plus million miles. And only one-tenth of one percent of the entire weight of the spacecraft is not fuel or rocket. So the rest of it, everything else has to go in, all your, your, your people, your, your scientific equipment. So actually, they're very strict about what you can take 
and they have number, they have it down to 15 pairs of clothing, not, not 16, 15. And they want you to bring a book. And it was a suggestion. I said, oh, go cheat, bring two books. You know? But I told you something. Our next one is how to pack for prison. Because, by the way, you can. There are things you can bring to prison. And after that, we're going to do how to pack for the apocalypse, which, by the way, should be self-defining as the last of the articles. <laughs> What to, yeah, let us know when you're going to publish that. So <laughs> yeah, right. Give a heads up curve. on that one. That's the uh, ultimate it, trip. You know? Yeah. You know, I want you to just offer some examples because that way it maybe crystallizes what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, for example, you got something paper making in Korea. Yeah. You also have a recommendation for restaurants in Italy that are a little bit different than perhaps the run of the mill reviews. Just yeah. give us some examples. Yeah. Well, the one you're referring to, Hanji, was a video made by a very young and very, very talented Korean filmmaker who we discovered in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, where I taught for a year. So I have a lot of friends and relationships there now. So uh, he did this beautiful piece about um, how to make paper, the ancient art of paper making, which I thought was wonderfully ironic given that we're in the digital age and, and the piece is about how this is really kind of a disappearing art. But it's just a beautiful piece of filmmaking and it's cultural. And you're there. You know, every one of my pieces, I say my, ours, every one of Wanderlust's pieces has to bring you there. And that's not just by saying this is a great hotel room. We do that too. We have the Rome Hotel Guide. If you want to know where to stay in Rome, check our guide out because we went through all the hotels and decided these are the best ones and most interesting from a mixture of personal experience and research. You know, my own experience was very good in that respect. Um, So another example, the one about the restaurants, um, I think you're probably talking about 10 places to eat before you die and then you can die. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because obviously there are 10 million places you could eat that are going to be interesting uh, on this planet. But I just wanted to pick 10 places, not all of them restaurants. One of them is a Vietnamese barge that my uh, main um, food writer, uh, a guy called Chris Johns, who's a superb uh, travel writer, he uh, said his best meal he ever had in his life, best meal, and he wrote about it for us. So we, we put that in. I put in um, the Mondo X place we were talking about, La Fratria. Uh, we were talking about f- before in a drug rehab. And uh, the it's last, a, it's a drug rehab center in Italy that yeah. also happens to have amazing food. Yeah, course, world world class restaurant, world class restaurant, and all done by Alex. Uh, Bob, you know you have a, a very long history in magazines. Your father founded Penthouse, mm-hmm. uh, which also was into experiences of different natures. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I have to wonder, and and you, you talked about how it, the irony of paper making in a digital era, in a digital era where the barrier to entry in magazines is so low, mm-hmm. what gives you confidence that this will be successful? Oh, I think a large doses of stupidity. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but people a large can find. Of- People Alcohol have, helps. Well, but people no, have people yeah. have you know obviously a uh, immense appetite for stupidity. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering. No, no, you know, I mean, where, my stupidity. Oh. <laughs> no, not theirs. No, God, no, All no. Right. Glad we cleared that up. No, no. I mean, I think. Look, I was joking, but in, in one respect, you do have to be dumb enough to believe that it will work. And I've done that my entire career. You know, I started a spin magazine. I literally did not know how to start a magazine. Um, in fact, we got all of the pages together, and then we all looked at each other and said, what do we do now? And everybody said, I thought you knew. I said, I thought you knew. So I called a friend of mine up and come up and tell me what we did next. And she christened us the land of the Lost Boys, because literally none of us knew. Then we got the magazine out. I think, I think a, a beautiful, healthy dosage of innocence and naivety, naivety maybe more than innocence, is very helpful in these times. Because it keeps you focused on, like, you might as well do the right thing, the thing you had in mind, because you don't know how to do it otherwise. And the only thing I know how to do is tell a good story occasionally. Um, well, hopefully a lot more than occasionally. And 
all stories have to be about human beings. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a thing. Bob Guccione Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Bob Guccione thank Jr., you. founder of Wanderlust, WanderlustTravel.com, which is based in New York and launched today. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, we've heard a lot about uh, consolidation and partnerships within the airline industry. Uh, and Avianca Holdings is not immune to that. We're going to be speaking now uh, with someone who knows all about the latest partnership agreements. And that is Hernan Rincon, who is the chief executive officer of Avianca Holdings, which is based in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, Hernan, thank you so much for joining us. And I know that uh, Avianca has talked about some kind of partnership with Con- uh, with United, correct? Uh, where, what stage is that in right now? Well, uh, thank you for having me. Really pleasure to be here. Uh, last year, we began a search for a commercial strategic partner that would allow Avianca, who serves Latin America very well, to connect well with the United States and North America. And after a long process, we chose United as our best choice. Many reasons for that. First of all, United and Avianca already are part of the Star Alliance, and that provided a very good foundation for us to work together. And then we found out that we had similar approaches and very complementary routes. And what we're trying to do right now is come to an agreement so that our passengers from Colombia, South America, Brazil, into the United States, or from the United States into Latin America, would have a seamless experience. Either fly with United within the United States and then connect with Avianca in Latin America or vice versa. We made great progress in that negotiation. We meet on a weekly basis. We have made great progress, and we believe we're aspiring to close the agreement in this year. Now, you also have something coming up this year, and that is a court date, I believe. It's on the 19th of September, and I'm wondering if you could just explain how this all happened, that you're ending up uh, in a court case and in a lawsuit with, I believe, it's your second largest shareholder. That is correct. Kingsland is the company that filed a suit against Avianca. They filed a suit against Avianca, United, uh, Synergy, which is the parent company of Avianca, and the Fromovich brothers. We believe that the lawsuit has absolutely no merit. As a matter of fact, the judge in the state of New York uh, ruled in our favor the first two instances. And now we have, as you clearly said, on September 19, a hearing. The hearing is because we filed for dismissal of the case because there is no merit. We're looking forward to having that conversation with the judge, and we are optimistic that he will judge, he will rule against in our favor. So uh, you're somewhat new to the airline industry. You joined Avianca 
little bit more than a year ago. Uh, you were previously at Microsoft Latin America. You're the chief executive officer of that. Uh, how has your opinion been changed about the airline industry since joining Avianca? And uh, what were you most surprised to learn uh, regarding the challenges of this industry? That's a great question, and I can give you an answer for hours. But let, <laughs> let me say the following. Uh, the number one qualification that I had to be considered for CEO of Avianca is that I have 6.5 million miles with other airlines. <laughs> so you've, you've had a lot of experience exactly. in the passenger seat. All right, there you exactly. go. Exactly. I have been left in airports for three days. I have been given royal treatment by other airlines. So I know all the experiences that a, that a passenger can have. But uh, what I'm bringing to Avianca is two things. Number one, the digital and information technology background. For many years, 14 years, from Microsoft, I helped companies embrace technology, change their business model, and embrace digital. And that's what we're going to do with Avianca. We are transforming Avianca into a digital company that flies aircrafts. And at the same time, we're building one of the top two, one of the top two uh, airlines, Latin American-wide, serving the whole continent. I love that everybody wants to be a tech company. Even airlines are saying we are going to be a tech company that also flies planes. But I'm wondering, you know, what is the biggest challenge to the business model going forward? I know that some analysts have some pretty uh, ambitious uh, growth targets for Avianca. What's the biggest challenge right now? The biggest challenge is to take a 97-year-old company. Avianca is the oldest airline continuously flying in the world, not in North America, in the world, taking that rich culture that was not digital and transforming it into a digital company. What do we mean by that? The number one thing that we need to do is that every interaction between our passengers and Avianca be fully digital. At the moment, there are, we identify 18 points in which a passenger interacts with Avianca. One of those seven, 18 is when they're actually in the aircraft, the other 17 are elsewhere when you make a reservation, when you make a change, when you get a check-in, when you go to the counter, all of that. And we're beginning to transform that and we're applying digital technology to each one of those 18 points. Let me give you an example. Uh, millennials live in Facebook. That's where their life is. And we realize that for them to make an, a reservation, they would have to get out of Facebook, go to Avianca and make a reservation. We develop a digital assistant that is part of Facebook Messenger. And within Facebook, you can make a reservation to fly with Avianca. That's what we mean by digital. I just want to ask you one quick question. This is about money. Are you going to be raising any money this year? Going to be doing a debt offering? How are you going to proceed? We are planning a capital increase of $200 million. That capital increase has been given the green light by the board of directors, and we're now in the process of doing all the legal and financial to raise capital by $200 million. Well done. Thank you very much for being with us. Hernan Rincon, he is the chief executive of Avianca Holdings. They're also expanding in North America. You know that they have a new route that goes from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061, to Bogota. Thank you very much.
we hear a lot about active versus passive, in particular about how money is absolutely pouring into exchange-traded funds that seek to just passively mimic uh, broad indexes and away from active funds. But when it comes to debt markets, the trend is starting to reverse. And this I find really fascinating. Eric Balchunas, who does incredible research on this, joins us now. Eric Balchunas is senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and is a font of incredible knowledge when it comes to all things fund-related. Eric, can you give us a sense of just how much this trend of money toward passive, uh, out of active, how much that's reversing within the bond universe? Right. So when we talk about active mutual fund outflows, uh, you look, it's pretty bad. We're talking about $750 billion over the last five years. However, almost all of that is out of equity. That's the story nobody really talks about. Um, active fixed income has held, held its own over the last couple of years. It had maybe $50 billion out here and there, but its cumulative flows over the last four years are in positive territory. But here's the thing. This year, they've taken in $100 billion which is more than debt ETFs have taken in. So it really does kind of screw up a narrative here about everything going to A, ETFs, and B, passive. And the reason they're doing it is because they're outperforming. Uh, Most of that money is going into the corporate bond managers, and those managers are taking advantage of what they consider to be a really bad uh, group of indexes, namely the ag. Uh, They're able to just beat it pretty easily. And I think equity managers have a tougher time with the S&P. Well, Eric, I wanted to ask you, because for a number of years, there wasn't as reliable of an outperformance by active corporate bond fund managers uh, versus broader indexes. Is the outperformance particularly notable this year? Yeah, well, uh, SPIVA, the S&P 500 active versus index report, came out and had numbers that were even a little more uh, better than ours for them. And they sorted over 10 years, five years, three years. So it's pretty consistent. Um, where it doesn't work is government. Government bond fund managers are doing awful. Uh, but munis and corporate bond uh, fund managers are doing uh, really well. And look, part of it is right now, if you look at the, the best performing active fixed income mutual funds, like the top five, they all have a higher duration and more high yield exposure than the ag. So you could call it cheating, you could call it tricks, whatever it has. That could turn the other direction, though. So they are sort of going out on a limb a bit to pick up some extra juice, but that adds more risk. In other words, you're saying that the broad bet among active managers is to have longer dated bonds in their portfolios and riskier uh, bonds, specifically investment grade uh, credit investors, right? Um, And you're basically saying that this is a bet that could have absolutely gone the wrong way, but they just got lucky or whatever the case may be. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is where a bond manager would say, look, if it does go the way, I'll be able to react way quicker than, say, a smart beta ETF or something. And maybe they will. Um, In the case of Gunlock, he's heavy into mortgages, so much so that we had to move his fund into the mortgage category. But uh, there's other ways to do it. And, you know, I I work with um, Ira Jersey, who has been just a great resource for um, active fixing. He used to manage a bond fund. And he also talks about there's like it's just a bigger world. I mean, you've got liquidity premiums in bonds that aren't on the, in the index. You know, it's compared to the equity world where there's only 4,000 stocks total and there's the S&P 500. So if you're large cap, you don't have much room to outperform. And the S&P 500 essentially is full of momentum. 
Um, you know, FANG stocks are a good example. They weren't really a big weighting, maybe 1% five, six years ago. Now they're a 7% weighting, and the S&P rode those stocks up and got their performance as the market cap got bigger. So I think this is part of the difference between being a bond manager and being an equity manager. Uh, Eric, I want you to just comment on the concept of size, for example, the amount of money that is in exchange-traded funds, because uh, the Guggenheim high-yield fund, that beat the benchmark. And uh, I'm just wondering if you could put that into context for us. Yeah, so this is one where it looked like some security picking. It had a, it had a little bit of senior loans in it. That the HYG doesn't have that, but it didn't do too much. And what I liked about this one, the Guggenheim High Yield, is its triple C was about the same as HYG, but what it its sharp ratio was pretty high. In other words, it uh, got has good risk adjusted returns, so it didn't take on that much extra risk. And so I think if you have a high sharp ratio and you don't see anything that's like too far out on a limb, I think you have a good manager there. And I think that one, that's why I highlighted it is because I couldn't really find anything that was that dramatically risky. At the same time, it outperformed without taking too much risk. Eric, just another point, and maybe just to shift your thoughts here, um, the percentage of money that is in bond and equity markets that are in index products or funds versus just the active funds. Do we see any overall numbers for that? It's very low. We're talking about, um, in the equity case, uh, you're looking at more like 35%, 40%. In the bond case, it's more, uh, this is a ballpark, 10 15%. Bond ETFs and index funds have about a 10-year, or equity has a head start. Passive equity has about a 10-year head start on fixed income. So they, you know, the flows are good. Uh, Bond flows are, uh, like debt ETF flows are good. But the, the thing is, ETFs really got a, a made a killing on the equity side because of that underperformance. If that outperformance persists from active fixed income, ETFs won't have as big of a, a space to go and enter that market. Well, and Eric, this was exactly what I wanted uh, to touch on with you. Do you expect from the people that you speak with and from your own analyses uh, that right now we're seeing saturation of fixed income ETFs, specifically within the corporate debt universe, or do you think that there still is room uh, for expansion of passive ETFs in this area? Well, the big thing that like LQD and and, um, uh, HYG do is they're being used in place of derivatives by institutions. So it's not just like the ETF is, is competing with the fixed income mutual fund. It's also competing with derivatives. So those, those ETFs are like a whole different species. But for a lot of the, like, the power shares and the Schwab bond ETFs that are competing with mutual funds, they're, not, you know, they're still pretty small. They, they're probably going to get assets ultimately because they're so cheap. And one thing I've been going over is smart beta. So you know how what we just talked about how the ag is so beatable? Well, that's smart beta ETFs are now coming out that take that beatable strategy and just put it into an index. So iShares has a risk-weighted ETF. Nuveen has a uh, new ag, which is basically the ag with like a little dip into high yield. So they're taking the tricks of the fixed income bond managers and turning it into an index. If that can get root, then the bond managers are going to have a problem because if they're graded against that index, it's going to be tougher to beat than the ag. And just quickly, uh, Eric, uh, the uh, use of indexes, is how's that changing? Give you about 20 seconds there. 
Yeah, the use of indexes, well, look, the, I'm sure the bond managers love that the ag is still the – but if you look at what they invest in, it's probably not the right one. So I think that's uh, something they're going to want to keep. But I think the ETF market is going to try to prove that, hey, look, this is actually not the right index. Uh, they should be graded against these other ones. Well done. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Eric Balchunas, as always, our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You can follow him on Twitter at Eric Balchunas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.